This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, I'll discuss with Joe DeLauro, the gentleman whom introduces the podcast and thanks listeners after each interview, and moreover, my audio engineer, questions posed by our listeners. Joe, after all these years, I can finally formally say, welcome to the podcast. David, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on it. After eight years and over 200 podcast interviews, I realized a few months ago it may be long past due to try to answer questions posed by podcast listeners. Joe has graciously agreed to serve as interviewer. Concerning the questions I received in an attempt to be time efficient, I grouped or synthesized the questions received. If you're left unsatisfied, please feel free to email me again and I'll respond further. With that, Joe, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, David. We got quite a few questions sent in to you, so I'm just going to jump right in and begin with the current pandemic. Um, several emails came in wondering what your thoughts are regarding COVID-19. Thank you. So I've done a few interviews on the subject. Obviously, I'll do a few more. It's the topic uh, du jour, all day, every day. But I do think it's it's a helpful um, issue to discuss because I think on balance, what it really does is is provide or it's illustrative or a good example of healthcare delivery in this country or actually how poor uh, we deliver care. And so let's just go through a few of these, probably more obvious. So in some, I would say, that to be polite, if you were to ask me what's my overall assessment of the federal government's response, uh, I would say in one word, it's been incompetent. I think it'd be hard to argue otherwise. And mm -hmm. I'd have to imagine listeners know all these uh, statistics or comments, but just worth uh, noting them quickly. We're 4.25% of the world's population, but we account for 30% of infections and deaths. Had we practiced per a study published last week uh, by Columbia University, how we practiced social distancing two weeks earlier, we would have avoided 83% of the deaths to date. We're still uh, not testing adequately at about 300,000 tests per day. We don't seem to be making progress on that week over mm -hmm. week. As listeners are well aware, uh, the pandemic has had a perverse effect on minority communities. I did some research last week. African-American deaths compared to white are 2.4, 2.5 times in number, which really is testimony to their underlying health status, which, of course, again, disproportionately is far worse than what are termed non-Hispanic whites. And it just goes on relative to the adequacy of PPE. And of course, the president infamously saying that he was not responsible. Right. If you look at uh, the Congress's response, obviously trillions of dollars, but just coincidentally, the New York Times today, front page, um, unpacked how the 175 total billion uh, in monies going to the healthcare community uh, is being spent, or that portion has been spent to date. Just to make note, the first 30 billion tranche, um, just to tell you how politically informed uh, that spending was, uh, Kentucky, 
per COVID positive cases received $312,000. Not surprisingly, that's the home of the House Majority Leader, the, excuse me, the right. Senate Majority Leader, the Senate. Senate Minority Leader from New York. The per COVID positive amount of money that New York received from the $30 billion first tranche was $12,000. So it's $12,000 compared to $312,000. Then per the Times piece today, uh, it made known of the fact that essentially, and you can look at a Kaiser report that was out about two weeks ago, it's really the reverse Robin Hood effect in that wealthier hospitals or hospital-led organizations received massive amounts of money compared to community, rural, or far more poor or Medicaid-intensive hospitals um, uh, to date relative to the Congress uh, providing uh, funding. I will say um, perhaps the minor silver lining here is it doesn't look like we're going to return to telehealth regulatory policies pre-COVID, and that appears that uh, the telehealth expansion will be made permanent, and that's certainly a good thing. Um, I will say, though, I find it interesting if you have done any work in environmental health, you might have become uh, aware over the years of the so-called Gaia effect, uh, and I've heard little mention of that because some people have suggested, certainly not explicitly discussed, I've seen at length, that really this pandemic is more evidence of the Gaia effect, which is the theory that the Earth in some is a single organism and that when it's out of balance, you get these uh, effects or you get, uh, in this case, uh, public health emergency. I will say lastly, on there's much speculation about what this does, uh, the pandemic relative to the solvency of the Medicare program, because this was unanticipated spending. The Medicare program, of course, uh, per the trustees' reports, uh, is scheduled to go bankrupt in 2026, although under the more aggressive scenario, it would be bankrupt in 2023. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what this does relative to uh, the Medicare program. Um, so I would say generally, those are my overall comments. It is really quite tragic in some. Uh, we're now easily north of 100,000 lives. And considering the phrase dying for the Dow, uh, if we're opening up prematurely, it doesn't look like the mortality numbers or the death counts going to go down anytime soon. So it's a sad state of affairs. Thank you, David. Now, I didn't realize that the distribution of the federal funds isn't based on population. Yeah, you would think the money would correlate to the demand, right? Supply and demand. Not right. the case whatsoever. In fact, I'd encourage listeners, front page of the time, Sarah Cliff was one of the three authors. Uh, give it a read. It's, it's, it's not surprising if you'd read the Kaiser report, but uh, they spell it out pretty clearly. And the Congress, of course, the D's in the House certainly are calling for investigations, but, you know, the money's, money's been uh, uh, spent or the checks have been cashed. Right. Well, this leads into several questions you received regarding how Congress and administration regulators function. In other words, the so-called, quote-unquote, sausage-making. Right, yes. Um, and other related questions concerning Democratic and Republican approaches to healthcare policy. Sure, thank you. So, top of line, I would say, and this has been well-documented, the Congress is increasingly or ever-increasingly more dysfunctional um, I would suggest you read uh, Norman Orstein's 
work, uh, longtime student of the Congress, uh, he will say that, and has said, uh, the Republicans have a, it used to be thought that the Republicans were, if it was a football field, the Republicans are on their 40-yard line, Democrats are on their 40-yard line, and they tried to meet in the middle. Uh, but essentially, the Republicans have effectively uh, left the playing field. Uh, they're governed now mm-hmm. by ideology, which is very difficult to do in practice. Certainly, um, John Boehner and even Paul Ryan uh, realized this. So now you see the fact that uh, despite uh, the reality we have 30-odd million Americans unemployed, uninsured, uh, etc., cetera, uh, they've returned to their deficit hawk roots and are he- now hesitant. McConnell wouldn't take up Pelosi's bill $3 trillion as a fourth supplemental. Uh, now they're sort of Mnuchin and others. It's a wait and see uh, because now they're concerned uh, about the deficit, although, of course, they forgot about the deficit in December 17 when they passed their $1.5 trillion over 10-year uh, scored uh, tax bill. Right. So um, as for the Democrats, um, you know, they have their own set of problems. I will say, since this is an election year, it might be appropriate to note or relevant. One of their major problems is, and I really encourage listeners to read uh, the Joe O'Neill piece in the New York Review of Books, May 28th, um, where he outlined uh, a fundamental problem with the Dem Party, which is they are very poor at branding and marketing. And the I thought the best example he gave, which is if you look at presidents since Ronald Reagan, 1980, every Republican president um, administration has overseen an economic recession. Since Reagan, every Democratic uh, administration has overseen a strong recovery and or an economic boom. Uh, nevertheless, when you look at polling data, uh, do, do Americans trust Democrats more to do a good job on the economy? No, they don't. The GOP enjoys right. a significant advantage, uh, eight points or more, which is to say... I've, I've read that myself. Again, yeah. they have a branding and marketing problem. Uh, which you saw certainly with uh, the ACA uh, rollout. Um, right. A couple other comments. Um, the part of the dysfunction is the result of the demise of long noted now regular order committee hearings, committee markups, the typical grinding process whereby the Congress moves legislation. Regular order is now basically gone. What they do all too frequently now is they get to the end of the calendar year or session, they do this large omnibus, nobody reads, it passes at 3 o'clock in the morning because it may be tied to the fact that the government has to shut down because they haven't extended the debt limit or some other uh, reason. So that's really not a healthy way of legislating. And the other criticism is with the with the a demise of regular order, rank and file has really become, they really become, and this has been noted by other commenters, commentators more than legislators. So you you get a lot of just grandstanding, the typical demagoguery and fear-mongering. Everyone's tweeting. Nobody's really working a bill. My favorite example is during the big deal discussion of several years ago, Senator Warner from Virginia kept saying he wanted to do a big deal, wanted to do a big deal, wanted to do a big deal. Harry Reid, who was then the Senate Majority Leader, said, if and when the guy comes to me with actual legislative language, you know, I'll take them seriously. Uh, so I right, thought, right. Um, 
good case in point. Relative to the approach the parties take uh, to healthcare policy, I don't think it's, a, from my analysis or study, I don't think it's a stretch to say uh, Republican policy or healthcare policy uh, is close to, if not in fact, bankrupt, uh, which is clearly made evident by their failure in 2017 to produce anything resembling a replacement uh, to the ACA under their repeal and replacement effort. I mean, this think about mm-hmm. it. The ACA passes in 10. Seven years later, what's the replacement? And any replacement they did offer uh, resulted in a CBO scoring it as um, leaving tens of millions of Americans uh, uninsured. So they never really had a, right. if they had a replacement, you might argue they have a health care policy. Certainly they have particular provisions. They're fans of health savings accounts, the whole skin in the game approach. And the uh, right. uh, Trump administration put out a paper late in 2018 uh, that argued that U.S. health care could be reformed via choice and competition. And that lacks really any basis in reality. On the latter, uh, markets are highly concentrated, Herfindahl Hirschhorn index scores. And the Congress is never going to put the toothpaste back in the tube. Markets are consolidated, so they really don't effectively, they don't exist effectively. And relative to the choice, this begs a 63 paper by the Nobel Prize economist, Kenneth Arrow, who said that you really can't count on patients or individuals to shop for health care because of asymmetrical information and all other sorts of reasons. Health care is not a commodity like a car. Uh, not least right. with uh, considering the fact that most people don't care about health care until they're on a gurney or in an ED, and that's not right. the time to be evaluating. Even and the other problem, it. which really may be more substantive, is in health care, since we don't uh, calculate for value or outcomes achieved relative to spending, we have no idea to the extent or to what extent price reflects value. And this is Uwe Reinhardt's famous line I like to cite, which is, the finest health care in the world costs twice as much as the finest health care in the world because, of course, uh, Mayo could charge 2x of what Cleveland Clinic is charging, but Mayo's value is no greater than Cleveland's, but yet providers can have these wide swings in um, pricing. Um, right. So um, I'll say maybe one other criticism or note relative to the, the Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, you know... When they're, you could say when they're not conceding, for example, they, uh, the class act had some actuarial problems. This was a long-term care policy in the ACA, but, um, they basically just caved and allowed it uh, to be repealed. Um, and similarly for the Cadillac tax, which was an attempt to effort, however flawed, the tax exclusion whereby employers can deduct the money they spend on healthcare for their employees. Uh, they just caved on, and that was repealed as well, the so-called uh, ta- uh, Cadillac tax. I will say on the tax exclusion, you can't find a credible economist who wouldn't argue that that is a perverse or results or yields numerous perverse effects. Uh, and it is the third largest health care expense um, uh, the federal government incurs after Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, it's about $250 billion a year. But... Um, People would say it's a heavy lift, but the Democrats certainly should be leading on trying to phase out the tax exclusion, particularly if Medicare is going broke, which it is. Um, but right. you'll hear very little about that 
Uh, Joe Biden, for example, in his 33 bold ideas, one of which is health care reform, doesn't even come close to discussing it. Amongst other large issues he avoids, or substantive issues. And then, uh, relative to the Democrats, uh, speaking of heavy lifts, uh, this Congress, um, 116th Congress will end in the end of the calendar year. And uh, other than talking, and the House Democrats will do absolutely nothing about the climate emergency right. crisis or catastrophe, uh, other than mm. to talk and um, or the speaker referring to the um, Green New Deal as the green dream. And I can tell you there is an effort in the House to uh, have members sign a resolution supporting the Juliana uh, plaintiffs in the Juliana versus a U.S. case about the climate crisis, and it has been tough sledding to get Democrats uh, to sign on to what is an innocuous, by definition, a resolution in support of the plaintiffs. Uh, relative federal hmm. regulators, I know this is long-winded, but I'll just make a comment or two. Um, I'd say, moreover, uh, it would be nice if the taxpayer-funded health care program for senior citizens, or the frail elderly, meaning the Medicare program, would be regulated more consistently by CMS um, based on use of research evidence. So, for example, the leading alternative payment model uh, or pay-for-performance model, uh, accountable care organizations and Medicare Insurance Savings Program, uh, CMS doesn't bother to evaluate. And the recent enthusiasm more currently for site-neutral payments is based on really almost no uh, research. One 2015 GAO report and when CMS furthered the policy, if you read the regulation in the Federal Register, I counted, they used the phrase, we believe, over 20 times in finalizing, uh, furthering uh, that policy. Also, too, um, it's confusing enough for beneficiaries to understand their Medicare benefits, but it's made worse by the fact that we really have at least two separate programs. We have Medicare fee-for-service. We have Part C Medicare, which is Medicare Advantage plans, and they operate under increasingly different uh, regulatory rules. It's an unlevel playing field. Medicare Advantage is exactly that. It has an advantage, substantial advantage over the fee-for-service program, and that just makes it way more complicated than it should be for beneficiaries. In addition, there's no synergy. The programs should compete against one another. They don't. Um, Good news, possibly, is last week uh, GAO announced the new MedPAC, uh, Medicaid Payment Advisory Commission chair, will be the Harvard economist Michael Chernu, um, who uh, I interviewed, um, is a brilliant uh, economist, very energetic. Uh, let's hope he can uh, weigh in effectively. I'll leave it at that. That was yeah. long-winded. No, no, that's fine. Uh, did you say that? There's a chance that Medicare could actually be bankrupt by 2023? Yeah, so every year there there's a trustees report. In fact, there are two vacancies on the uh, trustee committee, um, two out of five. And every year they okay. put out a report, uh, spring, um, spring. So it was out a couple, three weeks ago. And the last few years, it stated the Medicare program would, uh, this is the Part A trust fund, hospital trust fund, would run out of reserve uh, in 2026. However, there are various scenarios, and the more aggressive scenario calculated that it would be bankrupt in 2023. This isn't surprising because if you get into the weeds on this, 
with the, with the exception of two years, 16 and 17, uh, the fund has been in the red every year since 2008. Now, the concern is, of course, with COVID, you know, disproportionately affecting seniors who are immunocompromised, not surprisingly, and they're frail. Um, that's going to drive or accelerate Medicare spending. So um, if it goes bankrupt, right. it's not as if the program disappears. What happens is then by law, the Medicare program can only spend as much money in the Medicare bank account. So if there's no reserve going into the year, basically they start with zero dollars. So the question becomes, what claims do they start paying? I mean, it's just chaos at that point. Right. So the Congress, and at some point I would say, um, will say, the Congress likely, certainly if there's a D in the White House, the Congress has to do a major tax bill. There's just no toys about it. Right. If for no other reason, then they have to put the Medicare program on a more solid uh, footing. And that's why I mentioned uh, earlier the tax exclusion again, because if all of a sudden you have uh, over the 10-year budget window, $2.5 trillion, that's a lot of money you can throw at improving the Medicare program, not only keeping it solvent, but do all the things it should have done years ago, which is, of course, we have no non-catastrophic long-term care benefit. Uh, in this country, as opposed to all of Europe. Um, it has a horrible effect on families. And it's beyond belief that in uh, 2020, there's no oral health benefit in Medicare, other than for a few examples, if you're in a car accident, you need some emergency oral surgery. But there's no oral health benefit. And we can go from there relative to the imperfections uh, of the Medicare program or how it might be improved. All right. Thank you. This might be a good time to pause since we have a lot to cover still. So we'll be back with part two shortly. 